I also really like my own time and I can find things mindful that someone else might not find mindful. And sitting on a ride on mower was honestly, I honestly look back on the years we lived in that house and think one hour at a time, hour and a half at a time. I loved it. I would wake up on a Sunday and I pull the blinds up and I think, please let it be dry because I get my hour and a half. Anymore. Welcome to Roommate 08, the imaginary room where we will give you the eight things which will make your life happier, healthier and more comfortable. Brought to you from Meditation Rocks, hosted by founder Lucy Stone. So he's one of the most recognisable faces and voices of English rugby. A professional player, a prop in fact for Saracens and Bath, with a career lasting over a decade and a half, including eight caps for England. He's now a TV rugby pundit with his own podcast, Flats and Shanks. Please welcome to Room 808, David Flatman. Thank you for being there. Okay, that is an act that's accurate. I did read on um, Wikipedia once that I was a big fan of the Deftones, and having never heard of the <laughs> Deftones, I wondered who put that in. Probably the Deftones. Probably the Deftones. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, there was some funnier stuff on mine once. Um, but I can't quite remember what it was. It was inappropriate for this podcast, but somebody yeah, sure. must have taken it off. And I, I didn't mind it being on there. I didn't mind that at all. So you leave Put it, it on. back on then. It was just after um, a guy called Gareth Thomas, a Welsh, the Welsh rugby captain, had gone public with the fact that he was gay. And we all knew, we'd known for years. And when I say none of us cared, well, I mean, we all cared about him very much, but no one, no one cared if he was gay, straight. No, one, no one's bothered really in, in rugby as a rule. And... Um, Somebody put on mine, actually, David was the first openly homosexual, but they put it on, not Gareth Thomas, it was David. They put it on as like a Mickey take. And I thought, well, no, leave it on there because I'm not yeah. I'm not gay, actually. But I wouldn't mind some people thinking I am because it gives me a bit of edge. It makes me, it oh, makes well, me feel more sort of worldly. I think that's brilliant. I, I'm going to go in afterwards and put it on for you. So you put it on, back. yeah. Yeah, I yeah. might add a few extra things as well. Is that all right? Perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, thank you. Welcome to Room 808. So we're locking you in, David, for a week into Room 808. But you're going to be safe. You're going to have some little things to make you happy and healthy. But before we get on to those things, how's lockdown been for you? I mean, we've all had this really new experience of being locked in, locked down, whatever you want to call it, locked up. How have you found it? It's been different things for me. It's been professionally worrying because... I make my living in live sport and mass gatherings, and they were both deleted for a long time. Live sport is now back, which is great news. I mean, for, for, a lot, for lots of different reasons, but since you're asking me, it's great news for me because it's some work to do. But mass gatherings are not back yet, and they're nowhere near being back yet. I'm talking about, you know, 1,200 people at the Grosvenor for a charity auction and that kind of charity dinner, and that's my work, really. Um, so... Professionally, it was worrying. It still is a little bit because you just don't know what's going to come back and what isn't. People are very quick to reassure you that ah, I'll be fine by next year. Well, actually, there's no way we were going to have three months without any events. And now it will be a year. I mean, it will be a year between big events, at least by the time another one happens, we think. So professionally, it was probably quite anxiety inducing and it exposed a lot of people, including me. Personally, it was once I got over that initial few weeks of I guess it was panic. Really, it was wonderful, and I and I kind of loved it because when there's work to do, I'm very keen to work hard. When there isn't, I'm very very adept at relaxing. I do not. I'm not someone who struggles to relax. So 
having not having much of a schedule is fine by me. I didn't need to get up and make my bed before 7.30 and get into smart clothes. And I didn't need to do any of that. I could just relax all day. I spent loads of time with my children. I did a lot of homeschooling. My ex-wife and I live very close to each other and uh, the relationship is very good. So they kind of flowed between the two houses and she worked throughout lockdown from home, which meant I had the kids loads and we don't have set routines, but we kind of go with the flow, whatever helps the other one out. It was just wonderful. And we did loads of walking and we did loads of mucking about and wrestling in the fields and arguing and watching movies and eating stupid food and cooking outdoors. It was genuinely partly worrying and partly the best time of my adult life. So there you go. Totally the same for me, actually. Yeah, I think it, if, yeah. You, if you, yeah, once, because obviously we had to shut the studio and I lost half my income in schools and you kind of think, what the hell? And then actually I go, okay, fine, but I'm spending loads more time with my son. And I think you're, you're right. I think if you can take some of the little positives, it's a really nice thing. And just to celebrate what we've got. Any surprises about what you are now good at because of lockdown? Anything that you've learned? Any little skills or... Any just moments, or maybe even something now that you really appreciate, other than time with your children, something that you really appreciate that you hadn't before, perhaps with your busy life? Uh, what One of them is to do with my children, actually. One of them is, I'm not a volatile person, but I can, I'm more reactive than, I wouldn't say I was placid. I'm in between somewhere, but I'm probably a bit too reactive and I'm a bit too easily narked, you know, and I... I can be a bit snappy and not that bad, but enough that I register it and pull myself back every now and again. I'm sure lots of parents get there and I won't apologise for that because that's just what parenting is like. But I I found that even last night, my girls came back from school and one of them was on great form and the other one, who's usually just wonderful, was just horrible. She was grumpy, tired, really rude, like obnoxiously rude to me. Our relationship is just fantastic and she's never really rude to me and she was horrible. And I told her she was being rude and I told her she wasn't being very nice. And that's as far as it went. And I basically forgave her for everything because she's 11, she's knackered, she's hormonal, she's all that. And I think it has given me a new level of understanding as a dad. And that, that makes you, when you do little, you make improvements to yourself. You know, you've got to be realistic about your short one's shortcomings and you have to try and make improvements. And I feel like I'm reasonably self-aware, but I feel, you know, pleased and pleased for her now understanding her a bit more but also proud of myself for making those little gains and also what else yeah I think not rushing stuff is when I actually spend a lot of my life rushing and I hate rushing it's one of the things I hate most in life I hate being late which means I rush everywhere well I don't need to rush everywhere so it actually when there was no schedule for month after month it actually I think it relaxed that section of my brain which tells me that I don't have anywhere near enough time to do everything when in reality I have way more time than I need. Really interesting. I mean, you're going to have a lot of time in room 808. So let's get there. A week to yourself, which a couple of parents that I've been speaking to and interviewing have said this would be actually the dream just to have a a week in a room on your own with all your favourite things, even though we love our children very much. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's nice to have a break. Okay, the view then. It's it's different when you're divorced. Honestly, it's different because... I am divorced, I know. I honestly, I actively don't want a week on my own. I don't, I don't mm. want it. I mean, I would, I could enjoy it. I'm not going to cry myself to sleep at night because I'm on holiday. I'm not, you know, I'm not being over the top. I'm also not, you know, um, I'm not virtue signaling here, but I think that, you know, for example, my, I have a lovely girlfriend and before Christmas last year, we went to a charity event in London 
bought a raffle ticket and won the raffle. The prize was an all expenses paid trip to the Maldives with flights included. Right, the wow. flights included. And it's just unbelievable. And it got cancelled because of COVID, but that's not the point. My first thought was, oh my God, the girls who are eight and 11 will love the Maldives any way we can add them on. And my girlfriend straight away, she's like 100% got to add them on. It'd be so much better with them. Yeah. And I honestly feel like if I could pick any holiday I wanted for a week, let's call it Room 808, I would take them because I don't have them all the time. And <laughs> when true. I'm not with them, I want them, you know. Yeah, I know. I totally understand. I was being, I was kidding. Um, right, get, talk, talk me through the view then. So you're looking out from your room. What would be your ideal landscape to look out on and why? I think everyone has their thing. My, mine is, um, I, I like hills. Um, to look at I don't like walking up them because I'm a heavy I'm a big guy and I, I don't really like walking up hills but I do it to um, you know pretend I'm driven by exercise and you know to pretend I'm earthly basically and grounded but I actually hate it I don't like don't mind going downhill I like looking at rolling hills but I also I, I like having a lawn to mow I've moved house a couple of times now since then but I bought a house we bought a house years ago um, outside Bath and had a big lawn and I didn't care about the house I loved the house but I just didn't care about it or losing it or doing it up really I would been desperate since I was a kid I'm obsessed with toys and machinery to have a ride on mower and I realized ride on mowers mean nothing and they don't make they don't make you happier but I loved it so much that thing that I was genuinely upset when we had to move and I had to you know get rid of that thing and it's funny because I'm sort of loosely house hunting at the moment and in Central Bath I said to my estate agent I said is there anywhere in Central Bath I could buy on a not enormous budget that needs a ride on mower and he said no there isn't one place in the whole city I said, right okay no. I might have to live in the country so I think a nice lawn that I can go and take care of because that is a couple of hours a week where I zone out and I used to play rugby and after rugby I worked at Bath Rugby and it was all quite intense and there were these two blokes that had ride on mowers and they just used to do the because you've got to mow the grass pretty much every day at that level of sport. And they would just go up and down and up and down. And someone said to me once, poor blokes, that looks mindless. And I thought, lucky blokes, that looks mindless. So yeah, I'd like that to look at. And I love animals. So cows are, cows are good. I like cows. But any animals I can look at, even better. A few pigs, whatever they got. It's that there's something almost mindful, isn't there, in terms of, obviously you'd expect me to say this, about something that's a repetitive job, a simple job where you get a result after it, a phys you know, a physical job in effect. So almost like a sense of mindfulness when you're on that ride. on It's exactly mindfulness. And I'm not someone who practices mindfulness, or so I thought. And then I think to myself, well, actually, lots of the things I love doing are, I love being with people, but I also really like my own time. And I can find things mindful that someone else might not find mindful. And sitting on a ride on mower was honestly, I honestly look back on the years we lived in that house and think one hour at a time, hour and a half at a time, I loved it. I would wake up on a Sunday and I pull the blinds up and I think, please let it be dry because I get my hour and a half. And it wasn't a break from the kids or a break from the missus or anything unoriginal like that. I loved my family, you know, it wasn't that. I just loved it. I loved being in a machine and I still I drive a lot now for my job and I regularly drive six five six eight hours a day to work and back at different places and I love it it's just it's therapy mm. for me um so I come back quite often feeling very relaxed indeed where most people might have hated a four-hour drive back from Coventry or something or it's Manchester I love it yeah. so I've got to do it so it's a bit of luck that I like it brilliant but you talk about the outside world a little bit you know with getting in touch with nature and you talk about something that you really love doing is being outside and cooking on your on your barbecue what what is it about cooking outside that you particularly love I think I like the food 
it produces is one thing. Um, I do. Also, I'm a very hot person. Um, by that, I don't mean I'm um, naturally attractive. That isn't the case. But I'm, I'm my my body temperature is very high. I'm sitting at home in a hoodie now, and I can't quite believe I started this Zoom in a hoodie because I'm a bit too hot now. I never, I you don't can wear. Take it off much. if you want. It's fine. Well, I've there's nothing else there. Oh um, well, okay, no, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not appropriate. That's an after hours point. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Yeah, but I. I'm very warm a lot or a lot of the time. I work on in sports TV and stuff. And a couple of times they've said to me, look, it's a Friday night game. Everyone else on the panel is, we're standing by the pitch. Everyone's wearing jumpers and scarves or coats. Could you please wear a jacket? Because I'm just in a shirt. <laughs> and I said, I'm not cold. It's 10 o'clock, half nine, 10 o'clock at night. I'm not cold at all. So yeah, but it looks weird. So <laughs> I'm, so genuinely, I like it because... You know, people imagine you standing in the sun doing a barbecue. I do that, but nine months of the year, it isn't like that, is it? So I'm very happy out in the rain if I've got shelter or in the wind and cold. I'm very happy to be out in the cold. I love it. So and I worked as a rugby player. I guess I kind of worked outdoors for a long time. So the, the temperature I like, the food I like, it's also a process that um, doesn't punish you that badly if you get it wrong because you can't really rush it. And it gives me a lovely feeling, just like anyone who makes a nice meal, it gives me a lovely feeling when I can use my imagination a bit and deliver something that the people at the table enjoy. I, I get the same kick out of that as anyone who cooks food, but I like being outside to do it. Wonderful. And, and talking about food then, so we will recreate one meal that you've had. And I should imagine with your career, you've eaten all over the world, all different yeah. types of food. What meal, if we could bring it to Room 808 for you, would particularly bring you joy? When you ask me that, I, something like that, I always want to be original. And bear in mind, I'm six foot, I'm 20 stone, and I like cooking meat on a barbecue. There is nothing original or there's nothing nuanced. There's nothing cool about that. I'm, I'm fitting exactly into the type <laughs> I should be, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing exactly the right stuff. But I do love cooking. You know, I love smoking cheese. I love fish. I love vegetables and that kind of stuff on a thing. But... But the truth is, my dream meal is not the most original choice ever. It is a, the, the best meal I think I ever ate was in, a, in San Sebastian. It was actually in a, a vineyard. We went to a vineyard and they had this huge barn full of all their barrels of obviously wine and all that kind of stuff. And these huge vats. And they just had really simple wooden tables with little paper tablecloths over them. And they brought out, they had um, kind of a big asado grill outside. So there's just coals and wood on the floor with simple metal racks, cooking chunks of beef, covering it in salt. That was it. And they served us the most gorgeous wine. I don't, not an expert on wine, but it was really nice. And <laughs> just really big chunks of beef, beautifully cooked, covered in salt, with big, basically, jugs of ice water, because it made you thirsty. That was it. And there was nothing else. I'm thinking, where are the spuds? Where's the starch? Where's the veg? No. <laughs> no. And it was a rugby <laughs> trip. So they, they assumed we just want meat, but actually... You have to eat pretty healthily as a pro rugby player. You don't just eat chunks of steak. You eat a lot of the good stuff, you know. So it was almost like we, I remember not sleeping that night. It's the only time I've ever eaten. I've been in bed and thought, this meal has actually stopped my body from going to sleep. My heart rate was a bit faster than normal on my pillow. I think it was just so much red meat and nothing else, nothing to you know, cut yeah. through it. But it was so delicious that it could almost, I mean, not quite, but it could almost bring you to tears if you like me, it was just sensational. <laughs> and I've, I've tried many times to replicate it and I've got close, but I think almost the shock of how wonderful that food was with that wine, it will never leave me. And I was, I was 20, 20 years old. I've never forgotten it. 
Wow, what an amazing story. I've, try, I've tried I, to find the place again as well. I've tried to research I was going to say, to try and find it. No. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your career then. Was it always your destiny, do you think, to be a rugby player? When you were at school, were you a natural talent? Was it always your path or was it a bit of a surprise? Uh, no, it was always my path. And the um, thing is, now that now teenagers can grow up and say, I want to be a pro rugby player. But when I was a pro, the game only went pro in this country, in, well, globally, when I was 15. So I'd got to that point without knowing I could do it as a job. So it wasn't going to be, I was always going to play for England in my mind. And it wasn't arrogance, it was a drive. And I was driven. So, you know, at the age of 14, 15, I would finish school at my, I went to the grammar school in Maidstone where I grew up. And I would walk across the road at the back of the school, go to the local leisure centre and lift weights and go on the rowing machine and go on the treadmill and lift weights again. I'd be lifting weights every day. And you know, got to the age of 16 and I was just massively driven and no one used to turn up to games or training at my school. So my parents sent me to private school. They sent me to Dulwich College as a day pupil for my sixth form years. And my grades weren't quite good enough because I didn't really do much work and my concentration span is poor and I'm quite lazy. So they, my parents couldn't afford private school. So they, they sold both of our family cars. I didn't really know this at the time, but they sold both of our family cars. And my dad's a big bloke, you know, and he, he my dad, my dad's best friend gave him his two CV little Citroen. And my dad drove from Maidstone in Kent to London every day to work in that car so that they had money to send me to this school. Because not because you only, you only get contracts if you go to the right school, but because this was the best rugby team in the country. It just happened to be a school team. And it completely changed my life. Going to that school completely changed my life, not because of networks and contacts and that kind of stuff. I, I maintain to this day, Dulwich College was not a posh school. I mean, there, there were some couple of posh kids there. I mean, some of the <laughs> genuinely, some of the roughest mates I've got went to Dulwich College. It was kind of very cosmopolitan, very, very South London. And we were hugely privileged without quite knowing it, of course. But it was a reasonably down-to-earth place to be. But that that kind of kick-started it. And it turned out I had a couple of great players in the team and some talent scouts came to watch us and gave me a contract. And that was that. And I wasn't an actual talent. I was pretty driven. Um, and I was... I wasn't naturally talented at all, actually, that's the truth. But I'm naturally, I was born with, you know, a different gift, which was physical strength. And that's not something to show off about. That's just genetics. That's luck. So my genetics were very helpful in some ways in that I was at 18 years old. I was stronger than most men at premiership and international level or as strong as a lot of men at international level. So I was the youngest. I'm still the youngest player in my position ever to have played for England because I was freakishly strong for a young man and quite aggressive and whatever. No talent, couldn't catch or pass, couldn't run. But also my genetics let me down because, you know, the, my shoulders fell apart. I had five shoulder reconstructions. I had four Achilles operations, I had elbow reconstructions, and my body was was very big, very strong, but ultimately not durable. Um, and there's not a lot you can do about that because you can train your muscles, you can't train your cartilage and your bones and your tendons and ligaments, that's just luck. So mm -hmm. I had a lot of injuries, I probably would have got, you know, realistically, I would have got, would have played for England more than I did if I hadn't been injured so much, but I'm not bothered about that, I don't lose any sleep. Um, I really enjoyed it. And then the last couple of years, I didn't enjoy it at all was desperate to stop and then but couldn't because I got well paid and I couldn't was scared of doing anything else and then I got an injury and was told I'd never play again and it was an absolute relief to be honest with you mm -hmm. that's interesting really interesting a couple of things then so if if you were sort of looking at young people today obviously natural talent is handy 
But that mental drive and that commitment for you going to those weights every day after school was probably the building blocks, you think, to your to your career. So that kind of mental resilience and, and determination, of, obviously, I'm feeling is is as important, if not more important than natural talent. It's like significantly more important. This isn't like, so bear in mind, compared to a lot of my peers, my career was pretty un- inconsequential. Like it was a it was a bit rubbish. So pretty average. So I played, I had a decent club career for what, 15 years. And I played for England a few times and went on loads of England tours and whatever. Um, compared to most rugby playing people, that is an exceptional level to get to. So it's the top whatever percent. But in my peer group, it's not that special. But the reality is I was never the best player in any team I played in. So it's really easy to look back and say, oh, when David was 14, he was a freak. When he was 15, God, he was so much better than everyone else. Not true. It's just not true. I played with better players than me from the age of eight all the way through to the end. And there were players who achieved significantly less than me who had significantly more ability than me. And that doesn't mean I'm the hardest working guy in the room. There were guys who were more professional than me, but I would do the work. I would turn up, I would do the work and I would fight. And that was it. And that, you know, it gets you so much further. Take, you know, being a hardworking person gets you, you know, gets you so much further than being really, really naturally really good at something. I truly believe that. And rugby gave me a huge amount, but I did try very, very hard at it. Um, and but some people cruise to the top. Some people cruise to the top and stay there because they're just gifted, but not that many. Not that most people you see at the top making it look easy are doing a huge amount of work. I think that's the same with any career, isn't it? I've got friends who are actors and comedians and they would say, I'm not the best, but I put the hours in and I, yep. I'm just tenacious with my determination. And I think you're right. I think that's a good little life lesson for anyone listening. But injuries, though, that's got to be hard to deal with. When you've put all this flipping work in and then your body begins to let you down. It's not your mind, it's your physical body. How do you, I mean, at the, you say at the end it was a relief, but up until that point, how do you deal with that? Because as someone has never really had to deal with it, it's so interesting. It's, it's absolutely horrific. You know, and, it, and I was a 30, 30 odd year old man and the hardest thing I'd ever done was, that it was, they were the biggest things I'd ever done, been through were these injuries. It was, it made everything else feel small. And it's, people get anxious about different things. I'm, I worry about, employment I worry about money I worry about the mortgage not not that I don't have enough but I my parents were skint when I was younger and mm. there was a period where they were really really skint and I still remember their their fear and the pain in my parents eyes you know and my dad you know being incredibly stressed whatever time I woke up in the morning my dad was already up reading the post reading letters trying to work trying to generate money and it was horrible and that doesn't stop me spending money, oddly, um, but I do worry about not having any. So it this might sound you know, unromantic, but my primary worry when I was injured was not my body. It was my employment, because, you know, if you work in a bank and you break your leg or you do your shoulder, you work in a shop, you need a bit of time off, but you can still do your job. You know, you can still go back and do it. You can sit down and do it or you can do it with one arm or whatever it is. Or once it gets just about workable, you can get back. I needed to get broken bones and torn cartilage and things back to such a level that I needed to basically, I was an overachiever. So I wasn't naturally athletic. I wasn't naturally good at running or passing or catching, but I had to get myself to the absolute maximum of my ability from a position of, you know, being wheelchair bound. And I used to look at myself and think I've been in a wheelchair for months at one point with a long injury. And I was out for 20 months in the end and had four operations, infections, loads of time in hospital, botched operations, all that kind of stuff. 
experts telling me to retire and my contract's up. My contract was up in four months, you know, and I've been out for 20 months and I'm getting paid good money and I haven't played for all that time. They're paying me every month and I haven't played a single game. And I'm thinking they're going to sack me. They're going to sack me. They're going to sack me. And I'm going to move. I'm 24 and I'm going to have to sell my, you know, move out of my house and move back in with my parents at 24, 25 years old, thinking I was on the way to building a great life for myself, you know, so I found it hugely worrying. And again, some guys cruise through it. Not bothered. It's the way it goes. How do how do you come back from that though? Because I I've been in a similar situation where you've got things happening and you know you just need to get on with it and you know you can do it, but your mind is just being distracted by this financial concern or whatever concern it is. How do you find that inner strength to keep going? It's different. It's different from where I where I was, Lucy, because I don't think I required inner strength. My mum told me a couple of times that I was being really brave, and I politely asked her to stop telling me that because it was starting to get on my nerves a little bit. And um. My mum is adorable, but a wonderful person, but that used to really piss me off, um, to be honest with you. And I, all I had to do was turn up to work on time because there were people there that were trying to fix me. My life since I've retired has required more mental resilience than it did as a rugby player. I guess the, the key moment comes when the doctors say you can play again. And it's not like, raw. I can go for a jog again. It's like, right, I can run into enormous men at high speed and fight and fight for my life three three days you know, four or four days a week full contact full metal jacket straight away and you basically cross your fingers you think I really hope my shoulder doesn't come out again because that'll be it for my rugby career and I don't know what I'll do and I can't get insurance because I've had too many injuries and I'm going to get this this massive bloke's running towards me and I'm going to hit him with everything I've got and see if I survive and you do or you don't and sometimes you don't you know and it's that that's that's they're pretty hairy moments incredible and um, it's interesting that you say that you do find it easy to relax though given your job that you had and have in terms of being on in the media which can be stressful and, and self-employed where you're fighting for every penny you find it easy to relax you say yeah my, my I can't I'm affected by things like I can um you know I don't know about you and we don't don't suppose you want to get into all that but my divorce did and does affect me a lot and we have a very good relationship but it affects me a lot and when Mm. something happens which affects the equilibrium of everyone's happiness be it mine or hers or anyone else's the kids are kind of glided through we've done a great job there but affects anyone else's happiness around it that makes me hugely uncomfortable so if something is going on you know and there is stress somewhere I sit and I think about it quite a lot uh, more than I used to but I can achieve balance. And I am very good at sitting on my massive arse and doing nothing. A few emails, watching Netflix, drinking coffee. Sounds like heaven. (laughs) Honestly, it's beautiful, Lucy. Honestly, it's this wonderful girlfriend. I'm sure you'll meet at some point. And she's just wicked. I'm completely obsessed with her. I adore her. And she is so crap at relaxing. It's hilarious. I mean, she says, look at the upside. The kitchen's always clean. I said, well, yeah, it's a good point. But it's like, mate, please, can we watch a film? Like, Let's try and just do a, the film's two hours long. Oh, it's too long. It's too long. You know, doesn't know any TV shows, hasn't seen anything. She wants to sit and talk all night. And Aww. I love that sometimes, but I've said quite <laughs> early, I'm really sorry, but I talk for a living. If I'm talking all day at work, I mean, I'm really happy to talk and communicate. I'm not mute, but I probably want an hour or two before I go to bed to just veg a bit. Otherwise, I think my vocal cords will just set on fire. So the way I was going with that was your luxury item was your Kindle. 
and that's like a way of escape for you. I totally get when you're externally kind of communicating a lot during the day, and I say I'm doing that with presenting or um, meditation or yoga, getting away and getting into your own little bubble or imagination or escapism is a really nice Thing to do is that what you find with your kindle that we're going to give you in roommate 08 yeah i love it um and i've, I've only got one because um said girlfriend can't sleep if i've got the lamp on next to my bed with a book reading a book so she's got me a kindle i love it i've wondered i've been wondering for like 20 years if there's any way i could convince myself to go to bed earlier than half 11 or 12 every night because that's when i go to bed and it just can't be healthy um and if I've got the right book, then I do go to bed earlier and it helps me in terms of my sleep. But I love reading, you know, so before we came on this Zoom, I had half an hour just to do nothing. And, and I read, I finished a book that I've absolutely loved. I'm gutted it's over. But I, fin I finished it yesterday, but realised I hadn't quite taken in the last sort of 20 pages, 30 pages or so. Cause I couldn't quite remember the ending, which is ridiculous. So I went back and read <laughs> it again. And I, I love it. I, lo I just love words. I love the words. I love the way I love how few words some really clever people need to describe really really complicated things and this book cut me in half about 50 times you know and which was this book then tell us what this one is that you're talking about this was ghosts by dolly alderton oh it is and, ghosts okay and i mentioned it on my podcast the other day my little rugby podcast and then this bloke sent me a message he said oh, i'm ben alderton i'm dolly's brother i'm going to tell her you love her book i love your podcast i said oh great but i it's just, oh, it's fantastic. And it's nothing like the sort of book I normally read. I read it described as chick lit somewhere. And I think, no, it's not, it's not. Everyone should read this book because it dismantles crappy, annoying behaviours of men. And it dismantles crappy, annoying, superficial behaviours of women as well. I mean, it does both, for, it does it for both sexes. I read that and thought, God, that bloke is a prick. She's describing what he's doing. And I was like, I reckon I actually did that when I was 21. I've done something like that. And actually, the person I did it to was my girlfriend. It isn't that bad what I'm talking about. We're still mates. And I sent her a text and she's like, you definitely did. But you were a kid. We were kids. And also, I did it since then. Remember so-and-so from school? Yeah. Well, I went out with him for a bit and I ghosted him. I'm like, oh, you bitch. You know, so it's kind of, it's all kind of, I didn't properly ghost her, by the way. But it was, it was all a bit sudden. <laughs> but it's just, her observations are just so, so cute and so acute. And I just think to myself... The more I read, the better chance I've got of describing things I think and see with sort of the clarity that pleases me in other people's writing. That's kind of the reason I read. And if I'm ever stressed or anxious about anything, I'm not that anxious a bloke, really, but everyone has little things they stress about. If I'm stressed about anything, the Kindle is a good place for me to go. You know, I, mm -hmm. I like I love that. And I couldn't recommend that book enough. It is she's an absolute genius i'm gonna read that one it's come recommended to me once before actually i want to talk touch quickly while you talk about that about the macho image of rugby and rugby players what do you think about that was there an expectation for you to behave a certain way and to be a certain type of person when really inside you were different or were you able to be yourself i mean what do you think about that kind of the macho world of rugby has it changed? Yeah, it's changed. It hasn't changed all. It hasn't gone all. It hasn't gone a full one eighty. But it, it ain't far off. What what I love and love about rugby is that pretty much everyone, as long as they're not horrible to people, pretty much anyone can walk in there and be accepted. That's why people say things like there must be loads more gay rugby players at pro level than we know about, and they're probably right. Equally, it isn't. I don't think the environment that stops these people coming out, if there are any. Whereas in football, I've got friends who play pro football and work in. I think it's the environment that stops them coming out. Rugby is not that environment. You know, 
so I think it's hugely accepting. It's hugely, you know, it's very rugby is it, it's it's not ahead of the curve by any means, but it's progressive as so-called macho sports go in terms of dealing with things like mental health, how people actually feel, the actual human beings within it. It's far more, you know, progressive than it used to be in that sense. There was, I think, an expectation when I was a young, cocky bloke to behave a certain way. And um, I actually got asked a question yesterday. You know, my little girl's eight, my younger one. If you could live any eight-year period of your life, which one would it be? Would it be not to eight, eight to 16? You know, and I said, I would relive 16 to 24. And that's 16 to the time, that's a year until a year after I met my ex-wife. And I would change that period. Not so I didn't meet her. She's wonderful. But I would, <laughs> but I would behave differently. I would behave very differently. And I think without being too, um, trying to be too, I guess, pompous about it, um, sound too self-involved. I've been thinking a lot about writing a book over the last few months. And I've got a friend who is a writer and she's also a genius. Her name's Rosa Ranking G. I've been talking to her about it and it's almost, I've definitely had, I've had a real journey through masculinity, a real journey through it. And I now feel like, I know what I look like. I know that I've got a thick neck, a bald head, cauliflower ear. I've, you know, I'm big unit. I lift weights. I like meat. I drive a big four by four and everything's macho you know and I am about the least macho person I know I'm just not macho I am non-aggressive non-violent relaxed gentle bloke like a lot of blokes are I just don't look like it but it has taken me time to get there it's taken me time to become a balanced human being it's taken me time not to react to things in a certain way um, and to be comfortable with people thinking I'm wrong or with com be comfortable with people thinking I'm not the greatest guy they've ever met and people don't have to think that. And lots of these, there are lots of incidents throughout my life where I reacted very differently to them the older I've got. And I'm only 40 now, so I'm not exactly old, but I'm, I, feel, I feel infinitely less macho than I was 20 years ago. I wasn't a horrible bloke when I was 20, but I feel infinitely less macho than I did. And I feel more of a man than ever is the truth um because what my version of what being a real man is has changed hugely in the last five years let alone 10 years since I had kids and none of the things that I thought as a 15 year old weightlifting rugby jock were manly pretty much none of those things I now think make a good man so um or are necessary to make a good man so okay I'm going to ask you what makes a good man oh god where do you start I mean when you when you have children like I have children you know what what makes you a good man makes you a good father. So being big and hard and aggressive and doing what I want isn't manly. Actually understanding that other people's feelings and reactions um, are as legitimate as yours and understanding that what you do affects other people and actually being, not being egotistical, egotistical about it, but thinking what I do when I'm around other people has a big effect on other people because I am a big presence in my own home. So it's very important how I behave because my mood can often set the mood. Whereas if I'm in a terrible mood, everyone's affected. If my eight-year-old is, we, we're all older and bigger, so we don't care and we laugh about it. My mood affects everybody. So I'm kind of, you know, my girlfriend and I are kind of the head teachers in our house, you know, so you, you have to respect. And, and also, I guess being manly is taking care of, yes, your family, taking care of your wife or girlfriend or partner or boyfriend or husband or whatever it's taking care of them and that doesn't mean if it kicks off in a pub nut someone it means make sure they're okay make sure 
you put time into thinking what makes them happy and what makes them feel secure and do those things just because they're not what I need. I guess it's the languages of love type thing, but it's find out, think about what makes them happy. I think it is taking time to think about how other people feel and behaving accordingly is, you know, manly as opposed to doing what I want all the time because I'm the boss and I pay the bills, you know. And mm -hmm. But I think men probably are... I think it's reasonable to suggest that men are more naturally, more often selfish than women. I think the women I know versus the men I know, I think the women are more selfless by default than the men or more often selfless by default. Mm -hmm. So I have had to work at becoming more selfless, but less selfish. And it's acknowledging that and acknowledging that there are bits of you that are a bit crap and you have to do better with them. I think that goes for everyone, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, all, yeah. You know, you know, I've been through a divorce like, like yourself, and I think you do have that moment of reflection and look back at what could I have done differently? What could I do better going forwards? And also as a parent, you know, you, mine boy is 11, 12 now, sorry, and just, you know, as he gets older, what does he need from me as a single mum? You know, it's, it's, it's always that kind of constant evaluation. I think it's really important. And I think when you've been through a big change like divorce, you, do, you take more time to look as you go through. Like every day, every week, you'll kind of have a quick look back at what's happened. Whereas if you're in that churn of a marriage, you know, no disrespect to the marrieds out there, you know, hats off to you. But you, you can sometimes get in a rut, can't you? And you don't really feel about that, you know, that evaluation, if you like. Yeah, I think I think marriage is a rut. And I think it's a wonderful <laughs> rut, actually. I, I love marriage. And for a long time, I, I love being married. I'm not anti-marriage. But I think that once you go through a massive change like that, I think initially there's a raw period where you kind of, you don't want to say it, but you kind of think it's all the other person's fault. Um, but when you if you can balance it out a bit and actually look at yourself and evaluate yourself like you're evaluating them when they're not around um i think it's a really valuable thing if you want to know what you know what is what makes a real man well it's the same as what makes a real woman in a lot of ways actually it's it's not ev everything isn't someone else's fault <laughs> you know just what yeah. is what makes a good grown-up actually is what it is and just talking about i'm going to come on to music now because on your um feedback that you gave me about the music that you would like in Room 808 you mentioned your dad and how the music that you would like in Room 808 is related to your dad in some in some way tell us about that yeah I just have um my dad's my dad's a psychologist and he doesn't he's not um he's really very bright but he doesn't like ask you like really soul-searching questions he's actually quite blunt um he he said something to me years ago and he said what are your favorite memories of your childhood just pick a couple and I said oh that holiday to Dartmouth I love that and then I've always I've loved Devon ever since I was a child and then remember we went to Dorset don't know where we went went to Dorset I'd never heard of Dorset when I was a kid we went there and he said what about Florida Disney World and I said no nah, I didn't love Disney World sorry no offense um what about this and I said remember when we went to Scotland remember when we went to Wales and we went to you know wherever it was and Northumberland and it's funny because all my favourite memories are almost all, they're cuddling my, my mum's very affectionate and gorgeous. My dad was big, quite loud, like, like me probably, but very gentle um, and a bright guy and whatever. But he, you could piss him off and he'll tell you he was pissed off, you know. So he was, there was edge there, but a good amount. The balance is about right. But almost all of my childhood memories are driving somewhere with my family, with my dad's music playing. And my mum 
liked opera music, so we vote, we vetoed her crap, and it was either <laughs> Fantastic Mr. Fox, Billy Ocean, or Dire Straits. And I love all three to this day. And I'm scrapping with my sisters on the back seat and all that kind of stuff for the for room on the way to the south of France. But and my dad said all of these memories cost nothing. All of them cost almost nothing. We did them all because we had nothing. So we went and knackered old, knackered old Volvo Estate to Northumberland. He said, do you remember breaking down on the way there? I said, nope, no recollection. No. He said, exactly. We were stressed as you like, thinking we're not going to make it and we can't afford a taxi home. What are we going to do? And there's no internet, there's no refund, and nothing, you know. So it was kind of, he said, but all of these memories cost nothing and it's really stuck with me and it changed the way I look after my children because I do lovely things with my children and I'm in a fortunate position where if I really want to go to the movies or the theatre, or I can take them, I can do things with them, but I don't need to. They like going for walks and going for bike rides and doing bugger all kind of thing and yeah. just hanging out. And that always reminds me of that and being in the Volvo with Dire Straits on. Sums up, that's the that's my overriding childhood memory, I think, of having great times in the back of a crap car listening to my dad's tapes. I think you're right. And like you were saying about lockdown and like those simple pleasures, those, you know, we've got, we couldn't go to the theatre and the cinema then, could we? So we are out in the woods or we are walking the hills or, or whatever. And I think that's right. And it's probably maybe informed your parenting a little bit by taking some of those happy memories that you have from your, your own childhood, like into your parenting um, today. But now, also, also just... Lucy, I don't know what you think about this. I want to ask you something because Go on. I have a real problem with buying stuff for my kids. I'm very happy to buy them mm. stuff. My 11-year-old, she was only 11 last week, she has she had a laptop, an iPad mini and an iPhone. And she lost her laptop so she got bought a new laptop and then found her old laptop in a bag by the kitchen table. Right. And I have this major issue with all this money goes on children. And I think mm. we are literally paying, paying for our children to ignore us. We're paying for them to zone out when we're in their company. And I have a real issue with it. And I'm not sure how to resolve it without being boring daddy and annoying daddy I think there's a real balance to be struck because they are living in a digital world aren't they and there's an element especially as they approach teenage years and I've heard that girls are even worse worse than boys at this that the communication element of friendships is so much online now that if we cut that away from them then we're actually sort of cutting off some really important relationships but I think I think if you can raise kids, and I think we sound quite similar in this, into like enjoying the outdoor world and getting the exercise and appreciate, I think appreciation and gratitude, if they appreciate what they have and they are respectful of what they have, then I don't mind giving it to him. It's when he, if mine doesn't, luckily doesn't do this very often, if he does, he is told. But if there's like, give it to me, it's mine, or, you know, no, you're, you've kind of, I've given you that as a, almost like a gift. It's, it's earned that, that kind of right, if you like. Mm. And, and as soon as he became selfish about it, I, I, that would go. But I, so I think it's a real balance. They've got to have these things to a certain extent. And we, like you say, we are lucky to be able to afford to give mm. them those things. Not everybody has that. And that was shown in lockdown, wasn't it? Yep. In the homeschooling when people didn't have those um, assets. So I think it's a balance. I don't, you know, I think if you can afford to do it and you want to do it, you do it, but they need to earn and, and respect the things that they have as well, I think. But I think, yeah. I think if they like the outdoors, then that's a good thing. And if you go and wrestle in the hay, that's fine and go and look for bugs you're okay I think that's right um talking of animals you 
we allow a guest into room 808 children and girlfriend aside they they can come and have a, a little visit with you if you want them to but we're allowing one special guest and amy williams said she would like the queen we've had henning vane the german comedian wanting a german footballer to have a little chat with who would you pick david am i allowed to bring someone back from the dead yeah good Absolutely. news i would like to bring my recently departed bulldog cross dog called gus gus was one of the not the worst dog i ever met but he was a consistently consistently bad dog he was nearly 15 we had to have him put to sleep two weeks ago and he was just very old and it, it had to happen and i was having to carry him out for wheeze and carry him on lift him onto the sofa and he's a big bloke you know he was even he was a big he basically looked like the sort of dog you'd imagine i would have if you saw me walking off the rugby field basically so he was all white like a steroidal all white dog he basically looked like a dog that a football hooligan would have. That's what he looked like. But he was such a nice bloke after about five or six years, during which he was just a bit of a handful, really. And he was never nasty. He was just a handful. And I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. But I just loved him so much for always being his own bloke and doing what he wanted and moving at his own pace and ruining every other walk by refusing to walk past a lamppost I mean he would dig in he would dig into a pavement he's so strong as well I'm stronger but it's only so hard you want to pull a dog by its neck he was just (laughs) so stubborn and his willpower like I I loved him so much um and I think I've had other dogs and I've got another dog who I adore and I've had dogs before that I adored who's who who died quite young I he was five but I adored him I can't imagine ever nothing, loving another dog like Gus. I'm a real animal lover. I just can't imagine wanting a dog. This is going to... I can't imagine wanting a good dog. I mean, I've got friends with immaculately behaved, beautiful dogs that I adore, but I don't want them. I don't <laughs> want one. I, I want a big, super strong, willful, ultimately gorgeous and friendly and gentle sociopath is what I want. And <laughs> I just... I. <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not somebody who misses things. I don't miss things, but I miss Gus so much that I'm okay now because it's kind of daylight and I'm on a screen and whatever, but I struggled to think about it. And mm. I never thought, you know, even, I don't know, I, ne- I never thought I'd feel like that. I, I love animals. I just never thought it would affect me this much. Um, mm, I'm so sorry to hear about it. It's, 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 I think I'm quite a recent pet. I've got a puppy now, but we lost our, our family dog last year and I, I'd never known that either i've always it was the first animal i'd really been attached to and they are like i know it's corny but they are like a person i mean they're 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 absolutely he was just a massive part of my life and i wasn't a perfect dog owner you know i wasn't probably very good at all but i just i just absolutely adored him and and not because he was the world he was just good company he did what Funny he wanted the whole well. time. He was great. He was so antisocial. It's great. I just respected <laughs> him so much because he never changed. And um, he was he his just, own he, dog. He's his own bloke, and I just, I just, I, you know, I genuinely had so much respect for him. What did he teach you? What, what one thing can you sort of say that you are a different person because of Gus? He really helped me with my levels of patience. I'm incredibly impatient, incredibly impatient, and to a point where it's actually quite unappealing. Me taught me patience in the last few years of his life I would I would walk him and we it would take us I mean there's a little block used to go around because he was too too old to go anywhere any further 
I mean, if you walk briskly, that is six minutes, five, six minutes. It would regularly take us 40 minutes, 45 minutes to get round. And I would just stand in the rain, just wait. Waiting for him. Yeah, just wait. Oh. It's okay. You know, so he taught me that. He sounds very, very special. And yeah, we, we can bring him back for one final hug on the sofa. I think that would be lovely. Okay, talking of life lessons. So there's a visitor's book in room 808. What life lesson or mantra would you like to leave in the guest book for future visitors to read? Um, I think uh, Zoom Out is something that, um, someone said to me once and has stuck with me over the years I haven't always been able to practice that but it is something that I do believe in when people are cruising through life and we all cruise through life a lot of the time or lots of us do it's easy to say to someone who isn't cruising through life at that point to say you know to tell them to sort of zoom out and everything's all right and you'll be fine don't sweat the small stuff mate you know a lot of that I think we all sweat small stuff at some points and I think that's okay. Well, it is okay. It has to be okay because we're going to do it anyway. That's all right to overanalyze and sort of micromanage your own thoughts, even though you're not quite in control of them, the chemicals in your mind. But I think if you get to a point where you've had your sulk or your worry or whatever it is, and you can just zoom out, and this is going to sound a bit abrupt and it's not quite what I mean, but it, it works for me. If you just zoom out and realize that no one actually gives a shit, it's really handy. Um, it's a bit like someone saying, "It's not. It's, this isn't what it's about, but it's about you'd care a lot less about what people thought about you when you realised how rarely they did, you know? And it's a bit like that. We're so, we're so much more, in, less consequential, so much less important than we kind of convince ourselves we are. And I think if we could just float above the level, because we do matter and we have impacts on other people and love matters and life matters. So all, all these things matter in their own little way. But it's like, actually, if you could just zoom out and see it from the point of view of someone who doesn't really know you that well and is just maybe a 10 second look at your situation and can clearly see that it will be all right and it will work itself out in the end. I think it that serves to relax me a little bit. Just zoom out and see yourself for the ant that you are. And I think it's it's nice yeah. to be a good ant and a caring ant and to be nice to the ants around you in your little colony yeah. of ants. But you are an ant, you know, and so is everyone else. I, I find that if I zoom out and sort of almost take an aerial view of my situation, which can sometimes stress me out with the, you know, divorce and COVID and that kind of thing, I think, well loads of us in that boat and we're all going to be okay and I think this time that we're in now I was reading Ricky Gervais wrote this he says it's the first global event that is is affecting everybody at the exact same time so you might have war and it would be pocketing you know change it might you know affect people at different points climate change is affecting different people at different points in different ways you know, we watch the news. There are people in India dealing with COVID and in, in the Bronx in New York, in the banks of London. It's, it's affecting everybody across the spectrum in the same way. And someone very wise said to me, we're all in the same storm, but we're all in very different boats. And I yeah. think that's a really, really good thing to remember that we're all the same people, we're humans but we've all got diff very different situations. I think because I worked in PR and I used to spend a, a long time trying to get a story into the newspaper or on the television or on the radio. And part of my change of my life was realizing, right, I spent six months trying to get that story on the television. It's done now and everyone's forgotten about it. What, is, yeah. what does that mean? You know, all of that money that the brand spent, all of my time, all of my stress, all of those late night emails about the angle of the photograph, and now it's gone. What does yeah. it mean? You know? And I think that, that for me, and especially as a mindfulness and meditation teacher, it's 
taking the moments treating every moment as your as your last as if if that is what it, it is and you know taking those moments of joy that we have with our children or our loved ones our dog whatever it is is a kind of common theme they're all quite small things but yeah. it's what makes our happiness your friend of mine said it to me recently he's gone through a really really tough time and he said the thing is mate you have the hardest day of your life you find a way to fall asleep and you wake up and guess what the sun's come up again and it just mm -hmm. carries on it carries on regardless so if you're gone tomorrow there's a few tears then the sun rises and it goes down and it rises again you know and it's got it it, it yeah. just rises anyway it rises regardless and you kind of think it's a it's easy to say that when you're cruising through life but actually if you can try and get yourself to that point where i think i, I realize it's a contradiction to say we don't matter but we all matter i i realize that but actually sweating the small stuff is fine but it, as long as that is part of a journey towards you know a, a new dimension of perspective or a level of perspective where you're kind of just a stage or two removed from your own misery or angst or self-congratulation or whatever it is I remember a great example was I played a game of rugby for England and it was amazing and we had this big do afterwards and they you know they think you're all great well done and here's all your accolades and your money and I drove back to my flat in London and I kind of sat there and it was nine o'clock and I thought what's on telly and I got a Domino's delivered to the flat and I thought no one gives a shit <laughs> that's the truth of it mum and dad are over the moon um that's cool but no one really gives a shit it's just Dave who played rugby and loads of people do that. So who cares? It, it didn't diminish what I felt I'd achieved, but it brought me back down to earth a bit and thought, yeah, crack on again tomorrow. That's all it was. And that's all it is. It's not diminishing any us in any way. I think as well, you've shown why you were playing rugby. You were doing it for yourself, that achievement, and to make your parents proud particularly. But it wasn't about being famous or, you know, being a celebrity necessarily. It was because you wanted to be bloody good at what you did. Oh, yeah, I couldn't give a monkeys about any of the other stuff. It was, uh -huh. I wanted to be good at what I did. And... I wanted the respect of my peers and I wanted my parents to be proud. That was, mm -hmm. that was it. And you did it. Yeah, I did it. I, largely. I mean, yeah, I did. I did. I did. I mean, I could have achieved a lot more, but I could have achieved a lot less. You know, I've got one of my best friends was destined for greatness. I mean, real greatness. And he retired when he was 21. Mm -hmm. His knee went and that's it. And you just think, well, I did all right, really. I'm going to ask you then, with the doors are now unlocked to room 808, you can get out with the cows in the field. You can get on the uh, lawnmower that we've got ready for you. It's fired up. Go and mow that lawn. What's next for David Flatman then? Obviously, we don't know what's around the corner in terms of pandemic and what we might be allowed to do. But what's sort of in the near future for you? What are you working on? I'm working on starting a book. <laughs> <And> okay <laughs> I keep talking to people I know that have written books and I know I know a few and they've all said the same thing all you have to do is sit down and write it that's the hardest bit and I haven't I'm not ready to do that yet I'm going to do something I like writing I like talking I like saying what I think about things and I don't mind if people don't rate it or disagree I get I've been approached quite because I talk on tv about rugby and I can just about explain myself uh, most of the time I've had five or six publishers now or writers have said I want to write your book I want to do a book with you let's do a rugby book and I just couldn't think of anything worse I couldn't think of a book I'd like to read less I've got close friends who've written rugby books or rather had rugby books written for them I've never read one and they're some of my best mates I can't I just couldn't find it any less interesting to talk about that for two or three hundred pages so I've got a different idea on a book and I'm at some point going to start it. I think I'll probably start it in the new year. So that is next. And the reason I feel like that's significant is because it won't be something I'm doing for monetary gain, but it's something I just want to do it so that I've got it in my hand and I'm proud of it. 
and I stand by what I wrote. That's kind of, well, that's all I want from it. And someone suggested that to me about five years ago. And I said, yeah, there's no point in doing that. You don't, it's loads of work and you don't get any money for it. It's not, it's not worth the money. You know, it's like if I do, you know, if I do five dinners in two weeks in London, I, cause I'm a corporate MC as well. That's more money than I get for a whole book. Why would I do a book? And they said, well, just cause you're proud of it. I said, no, nah, I've got time for that, mate. I'm too busy. And we still speak. She's brilliant. <laughs> and we still speak. She says, are you too busy now? I said, I've got nothing to do now. Yeah, you've got no excuses. And she said, you'll grow up at some point and you'll come around. And I said, I think you're right. And we had, we've had, we've had, you know, 20 chats about it. And she said to me last week, you've never asked about money. I said, I don't care about that. I think that is a lockdown thing. It's a COVID thing. That just is nowhere near the motivator it was for me a year ago, which is fortunate because there's bugger all going on. <laughs> <laughs> I think as well is a little bit of a legacy thing for me. I've got, I mean, this has given us, I keep saying to my son to the point where he's bored, we're living through history. This is history. People will study this time in future. So anything you can kind of share from this time will be, you know, if, it's, if it captures in some way what we're going through or, you know, if you've lived through this time, it's, I think it's a legacy thing. It's not always about money. It's about what we can leave behind or be for our kids. I think it's quite important. Yeah, I do. And, I like, you know, I think my kids, if I write something, my kids will read it. Be show and tell, definitely. Well, they'll read it and they, you know, they might read it when they're older if it's inappropriate. I'll yeah. try and use some bad language because I think that makes you cooler. Um, <laughs> throw, just throw a few F words around. But I, you know, they're, it, it also is how do you write a genuinely sort of self-reflective book about masculinity as someone, you know, I know what I am. What I am is I'm a big bloke who looks aggressive and played rugby and whacked people and got whacked and did all these aggressive things. I know that, but how do you write a genuinely self-reflective book about masculinity without talking about how emasculated you felt in marriage and in divorce without offending people who object to what you said, disagree with what you said and are offended by it when you don't want to offend them. It's just how you feel. It's just what I think. But then I it's odd because I don't want to. I'm very happy to disagree with people and say what I think about things. But there are people I don't want to upset, but I mustn't allow that to dilute the book without throwing mm -hmm. anyone under the bus. It, so I have all these little mini contradictions. But again, zoom out. And it's like when you're a rugby commentator, it's like worrying what one of the Bath players might think about what I say about the Bath team. It's like, no, 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 that's not your audience. That's one, that's two or three people out of a million. But that's not your audience. You're talking to everyone else. So you can't worry about offending one. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think if you're honest, though, I think, I think, yeah, I think if you've, you've written it from a, your honest perspective and your honest experience, then no one can argue with that. It's your opinion your experience and yeah everyone's always going to have a contradictory experience or different opinion but yeah zoom out and it's your story that's that's what I would say yeah yeah that's it thank you so much David for being there and for sharing your stories and for being in room 808 I hope the experience was enjoyable and yeah thank you very much indeed great fun thanks for having me Thank you so much to David Flatman for joining us in Room 808 and we will be back again after the Christmas holidays. See you then.